JM in the AM. Soul Farm. Sukkis in Jerusalem. Oh, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg would uh, tell us that Sukkis in Jerusalem is going to be very different this year than it was 50 years ago. Someone, my late brother was in Israel, was in Yerushalayim during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And someone called me yesterday to tell me a story that happened during Sukkis in Jerusalem with him and my brother and another friend related to the war. A story I won't tell now. It's uh, frankly a very painful one. It has to do with some of the Israeli soldiers who were injured in the early part of the war. Um, but that connection of Sukkis in Jerusalem, I remember the late uh, great Mayor Weingarten. I'm so glad I can mention him during this segment and remember him during this segment. I remember him describing how his family left after Yom Kippur to go to Israel for Sukkot while so many people were doing the exact opposite, understandably, not a criticism. Some were leaving Israel at that time, and he remembers that the... Uh, the airplane, the pilot, had to turn off all lights inside and outside the airplane in order to land. And they, land under the co- they landed in Israel under the cover of darkness. It was the middle of a war, literally. <laughs> We're talking about they left Matzah Yom Kippur from the United States. And then I remember the, um, the Israeli soldier who uh, was in the United States for Yom Kippur, who we met at, I believe we met him up at Kutcher's. It was one of the hotels one of the years. And he told us how um, they, quote-unquote, ran to the airport. What, what that means, I, I never quite understood. I don't want to accuse anybody of violating Yom Kippur, God forbid. But it sounded like there was a, uh, a, tremendous, a tremendous urgency to get to the airport, and those who were eligible to serve in the Israeli army ran to Kennedy Airport as soon as they could, let's put it that way, as soon as they could, and boarded a plane that night to head to Israel. And this is, of course, in addition to so many other aspects of this story, which we'll get to uh, here at JM the AM. Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg is the director of the William S. Levine Family Shoah Institute at the Yeshiva of Flatbush. He has conducted for us, and we're so grateful, a brilliant Israel at 75 series about the Yom Kippur War, which has reached its conclusion. He'll, In fact, right after Sukkot, he's going to be tackling topics like... Um, like the Eichmann trial, the Munich Olympics, uh, Entebbe, et cetera, et cetera, as he continues to explore the last 75 years of Jewish history, which are the first 75 years of the modern state of Israel. So that'll continue for us here at uh, the Nahum Siegel Network, which we are very grateful about. And uh, he's here this morning, literally, to help us remember what was happening 50 years ago this week. Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg, a Gemara Tov to you, and welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum. A pleasure to be here. Gemachazimatov to you as well. I remember my brother telling us that um, he knew it was a serious situation when they looked out the window from the Beit Midrash where they were davening, and he saw a couple of guys with yarmulkes and talesim and kitlach getting out of a couple of Volkswagens that had pulled up literally in the middle of Yom Kippur Day, and obviously some of the people that he was davening with were called and uh, and were recruited immediately to get to where they needed to get to. And I'm sure there's a million stories like that about the urgency and the immediacy of what happened on Yom Kippur and this incredible, this incredible pairing of of davening on the holiest day of the year. Those of us who experienced it this past Monday, it's not foreign to us. We just had it, so we know what that's like to be in the throes of this great spiritual uplifting experience and then be thrown into the most basic situation of survival 
and not neglecting, but obviously setting aside for a moment, you know, the, 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 uh, the main purpose of the day and, and uh, shoring up Israel's defenses as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, and as best as possible. And I'm sure you've heard millions of these stories over the years. Yeah, that first day, uh, and, and, and when you speak to people who are in Yushalayim, that they're all over the country, the stories of when they found out about the war, when they started seeing the trucks show up and uh, be Megayes, uh, their relatives, um, you know, fathers, grandfathers, sons, grandsons, all going at the same time. But the one of the many fascinating, interesting things where even in the tremendous tragedies of those first few days, one of the almost Nisim, as Avigdor Kalani likes to explain, is that the Arabs made a fundamental mistake by attacking Yom Kippur. Had they attacked on Rosh Hashanah, everybody would have been all over the country. The roads would have been uh, very, very crowded. The fact on Yom Kippur actually made the giyus, the mobilization, uh, go faster, and the roads were empty so that the soldiers could get to where they needed to go. And a key part of the Syrian war plan, especially in the Golan Heights, was that it would take uh, over 24 hours for the Israelis to mobilize and start getting the reserves there. And in fact, they started the reserve start showing up six, seven, eight hours before that, which really made the difference. So the fact that it happened on Yom Kippur, uh, despite the, the, the pain of that, actually enabled the mobilization and enabled the Yeshua to occur. I, this is... <laughs> this is... A complete revelation for me. I mean, this is actually unbelievable. I had never heard a positive spin, a positive aspect of the war starting on Yom Kippur. But as you're saying it, I'm saying to myself, wow, that's so logical. That's so, you know, it, it, I mean, defense, you know, as, as any general will tell you, is all about, you know, space and opportunity and you know speed, obviously. And what you just described increased the speed and increased the ability for Israel to, to, mount, to mount their defense and to and to, you know, to defend the state of Israel. And I, I never considered that. And, 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 and Victor Kalani makes this point multiple times. You know, almost every time he speaks, he'll, he'll make this point about the Giyus happening on Yom Kippur. And it's funny, you know, I remember my father, I mean, I'm, I'm a little kid and I'm in shul and someone walks into shul. This probably happened to everybody in the United States because of the time difference. Someone walks into shul toward the end of Shacharis or around Laning and, you know, says Israel was attacked. And of course, I'm a little kid. I don't quite know what that means, but, you know, certainly wasn't happy to hear about it. And then, of course, during the, I assume it was either during the Yisker speech or the speech before Neila, my father, you know, actually mentions the news of the day as it spreads and, and you know, information is coming out. And that night, I'll never forget this, that night we're at our kitchen table, breaking the fast. We make Havdalah, and we're breaking the fast, and obviously the radio's on, because every Jewish home in the world had their radio on 50 years ago that night. And my father says, they've been planning this for six years, meaning, of course, that since the Six-Day War ended, the enemy had planned to attack Israel and to um, you know, exact revenge for what happened during the Six-Day War. And I I'm saying to myself... That that the 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 main part of this entire six year plan has got to be we've got to attack on Yom Kippur. We must take their most vulnerable day and mount this attack. That's why this fifty year mentality, which you've just broken for me, <laughs> that that you know how dare they attack on Yom Kippur when we are at our our weakest, so to speak. You you just made the argument, courtesy of the general, that there was an advantage to it. It's pretty remarkable. 
Right. Lots of, you know, they attacked on that day, among other reasons why they that day, as well, also having to do with the uh, the tides of the of the Suez Canal. But of course, they thought in terms of the uh, major psychological attack it would be the attack on Yom Kippur. They weren't thinking in terms of the the uh, unseen advantage, as opposed to having attacked a few days earlier on Rosh Hashanah, which would have made a catastrophic difference. Can you describe, because I, as you heard, I, you know, I know stories about that sukkis. I mean, I was told a story yesterday about that sukkis where somebody remembers being on a bus in Yerushalayim, Erev Sukkot, and the, the radio's on, like on every bus in Israel, even until today, and the driver stops the bus literally in the middle of town and says everybody off because he had just gotten this thing. This is how they used to communicate with the reservists through the actual radio right. broadcast, through code with the actual radio broadcast. He had just been called up and he had no choice. He had to run to go to his unit. So, I mean, there are a million stories, obviously, in the first days of the war. Can you give us an overview of Yom Kippur till Sukkot, what those first four or five days were like? Well, the first few days right after, it's with Yom Kippur and the first few days afterwards are known as the Battle of Containment. Um, the first 36 hours in the Golan is when Moshe Dayan says his infamous state of uh, idea of Khorban Bayit Shlishi. He thought the country was going to Chalil fall apart. Uh, till it's, and, and that Sunday, October 7th, really is one of the initial turning points. Day after Yom Kippur. With, the day after Yom Kippur, right. By that Tuesday, when you have the Battle of the Valley of Tezemekabacha up in the northern part of the Golan, that really is one of the turning points in terms of the stabilization of the battle in the Golan. And then two days later, the Israelis are able to go on a counteroffensive, starting to go inside to Syria. But those first few days, especially in the Golan, that was the most frightening part where people really felt this, this is it. And, and you talk about Nisim, the, on, on that first day, the Syrians there was were in the southern part of the Golan. They there was nothing stopping them. The only thing that would stop them was fear itself in the Kaddish Baruch Hu. There was there was not a single Israeli tank there to stop them when they had captured the areas of Tel Saki and that whole all those amazing amazing stories. Other than literally Nisim and Niflaot that occurred at that point. And what That's of, up north. It, one of the other Nisim is that Jordan was not in the war. Right, Jordan. Jordan. King Hussein actually. Uh, on September 25th, meet secretly with the Golden Mayor, warning that something's going to happen. And this is a major controversy. Why the Israeli intelligence doesn't really um, give more prepared. credence to this? Right. right. So Jordan, correct. It, it, it and that's a major, major thing that Jordan does go into war. Towards the end, or it, it, they do send a token force in the uh, in the Golan, seemingly more that Hussein needed to show the Arabs that I'm with you, even though he didn't really want to commit too much. And there were back-channel discussions saying that, don't take it out on us too much, I have to do this. So essentially, that, yes. so essentially it's it's Syria, Lebanon, and Egypt, right? Essentially. It's a three-front... It's, it's, it's essentially Syria and Egypt. Those are your two... Your two main and, forces, and and what is and, and and it seems to me that most of the stories that come out about the terrible injuries and and unfortunately the the uh, uh, the uh, soldiers that were taken from us uh, during those days, it seems like most of that was happening up north. Correct? No, there were a lot of casualties in the in the south as well. 
the first day, the they they called the uh, October eighth, third day of the war, is the blackest day in the history of the Israeli army, where they try to attack uh, the the, Syri- the Egyptian tanks that are in the Sinai Desert, and we suffer tremendous, tremendous casualties. Not so much from the Egyptian tanks, but from the infantrymen with the Sagar anti-tank missiles that they were the, these infantry guys that were just shooting it, and we lost the uh, because Israel, Israel did not have the defense equipment to deal with that. Right, and this actually is one of the major intelligence failures that Israel knew, the the upper Israeli leadership knew about these Sagar missiles as well as the SAM anti-aircraft missiles and didn't develop enough of a doctrine against it. To the extent that after a few days of the war, the Israeli tanks were able to counter the Sagar missiles was by, because the Hapashim, the Chayalim Shutim, the soldiers on the field came up with their own ideas how to combat it. Nothing from above. It was uh, privates, corporals, and sergeants who figured this out, how to zigzag and create sandstorms so that the Egyptian infantry who were firing the Saga missiles wouldn't be able to track the tanks. All right, so forget the way I described it. We have a very serious two-front war, two to three days into the war, as you said, on the Syrian border up north and, of course, the Egyptian border uh, in the south. I guess essentially most of the soldiers were in the Sinai Desert if they were in the south, right? Right, they were they were there, and uh, and the the handling of the south was much more controversial. The command the command structure there, and also many of the stories that people read about the uh, the colorful stories of the war come from the south because you had Ariel Sharon there, right. and you know wherever Sharon is, you have big stories. <laughs> right, Doctor David Hertzberg's with us. It's fifty years after the Yom Kippur War, and literally because Yom Kippur uh, was two days ago, and we're talking about days two and three of the war right now we're talking about 50 years ago today what life was like in israel so uh so now you know sukkot does start as a holiday in the middle of the first week of this very serious war uh i, I mean can and and again you know we're asking you more from a military and a historical perspective about the war but i'd have to imagine that you've come across either comments or descriptions over the years of what the holiday was like um in war conditions throughout Israel. Is there a way for you to tell us what how Sukkot started 50 years ago? So there are so many fascinating stories about Sukkot during the time. You, you have one story that uh, there's a wonderful safer in Hebrew by uh, Shalom Verstyle, who was uh, uh, learning in Yeshalavim at the time. And he wrote his book about the story. So he has a story there. where and he was in the Sinai, his tank unit, where... Uh, in the, uh, even at the beginning of Sukkot, so right around there, the uh, Colonel uh, Bren, who was later become a, a big general, they're ordering resupplies, and they tell him over the radio that okay, we need X number of shells for the tanks, and X number of machine gun bullets, and X number of sets of Lulav and Menesrogan. And the Colonel's going, "What are you talking about, Lulav and Menesrogan?" And the soldiers wouldn't back down. And the next thing you know, you hear over the military radio, "We need X in the Hebrew, obviously, we need X number of." Missiles, X number of shells, and X number of sets of Lulav and Minasrogim. And that's what was on many of these soldiers' minds. And in fact, even the Chilonim, the irreligious soldiers, would line up to bench Lulav and Esrog at that point in time. Even, by the way, Golda Meir, who was so not religious that in the beginning of the war, when she was about to speak for the Knesset, somebody said to her, Use the words that we're going to win, Bezrat Hashem. 
And she turns to the pe- person and says, I can't say the words Bezrat Hashem because of me, who's such an uh, irreligious person. If I use the word Bezrat Hashem, the country's going to go into panic and say, oh my God, if Golda Meir found God, we're, we're really, we're, we're really in there. We're really, exactly. A few days later, in she's, she's up in the Golan with Moshe Daigan being followed by reporters, and she sees in a half-truck that they have a mobile sukkah, 15 yeshiva boys, in the davening with the lulavim nesarogim in the in this half. Now understand something: the soldiers in the Golan in the middle of the war they had a few hours off to resupply, to refuel, and things like that, and the chaperai a, a couple of minutes of sleep, and they're taking of their time to uh, to daven. And she's so mesmerized by the scene, she walks away from the reporters, goes to these soldiers. They don't even notice her that she's there. She has to wait for them to finish Hallel, and then they turn to her and she's a chag sameach. So she even at that point is drawn to these soldiers that are davening in the middle of the Golan Heights. And you see crazy stories like this. I, I was just reading the other day, a secular guy who's writing, it was you know, now a man in his 70s. He's writing, he's in the middle of the Golan somewhere a few days into the war. Uh, not the front, front lines, but pretty good. And suddenly he sees a bunch of Chabad guys in their black hats and jackets coming with a love and mesrogim to find people to, to bench. And he's looking at this scene and he's saying they have no armor and they have such bitachon that they're going around trying to get Chayalim to bench Lula of Esrog. Unbelievable. Some people discover God when they're faced with tough and tough situations, huh? <laughs> I'll tell you the craziest story that I, that I read. Mordechai Piron, who was the Rebbe Roshi of Tzavah at the time, so he had a Keshe with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the Rebbe would send him some tapes in the middle of the war of Chizuk. He said a couple of times, Moshe Dayan came with him to listen to tapes of the Rebbe in the middle of the war to get Chizuk. Unbelievable. The, the, Moshe Dayan, the, the arch... Chiloni was sitting with the chief rabbi and uh, listening to the Rebbe. Unbelievable. Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg is with us. It's 50 years since the Yom Kippur War. Also, one of the iconic photos of, um, of soldiers in service, and I mean in service to the Jewish people, defending the state of Israel, and in service to God, is, of course, the soldier who is benching Lulu van Esrug or holding the Lulu van Esrug, uh, an iconic photo, which I'm assuming was from the war, right? I would assume that. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. It was actually, it was actually on the cover of a Kalbach album, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, it's interesting you mentioned Carver because when you were opening and saying about people who were leaving and people who were coming, right. so there's a story, I think it's in the book Holy Brother, right. where there was a young person who was trying to get out, and Lud Airport was, was crazy, and she was trying to get out, and she notices, this is, must be the day after Yom Kippur, and she notices Shlomo Carbach in the airport, so she, she knew Shlomo. Uh, and she runs over and she goes, oh, he has protection to get me on the, get me on a plane. She runs over to Shlomo Karbach and she says to him, could he help get me on a plane to get out with you? And he looks at her and she says, I, I think you're a little confused. I'm not leaving. I'm just arriving. I just got he here. Came, wow. I just got to work with the troops. Wow. Yeah. A lot of people ran to Israel. A lot of people left. Not a criticism. Obviously, everyone has to make their own decision. But those who did run in order to be there at that time, it is, uh, it's simply remarkable. All right, Dr. David Hertzberg is with us. All right, so now there's really two other things we got to get to this morning. Um, the first is, you know, when does this difficult period end? And is it myth or fact that without the United States coming out of the difficult period, which would have been very, very difficult. So let's start first with the timeline. Uh, what you described, the difficulties of the second, third, fourth day, and obviously what's going on during Sukkot. How long does that last? So the up north in the Golan, the situation stabilizes by the beginning of the beginning of Sukkot. 
stabilizes. There's still many casualties and much heavy fighting, but in terms of the feared existential threat to the country, it stabilizes. In the South, it takes a little bit longer, and there's a very important meeting that's occurring, I believe, October 11th or so, cabinet, 11th or 12th, a cabinet meeting where they're deciding whether or not to ask for a ceasefire and whether or not to make a very dangerous crossing of the canal at that point to put them in a better position to ask for the ceasefire in terms of negotiating negotiations, even though at that point there were still two Egyptian divisions on the, uh, uh, on the Egyptian side of the canal. In the middle of the meeting, Zamir, head of the Mossad, gets called out. He gets a piece of intelligence information that the Arabs, because Assad was doing so badly up north, he pressured Sadat, you got to do something. And they get a piece of information that, that, um, Sadat is going to take cross those divisions of uh, have those divisions cross the canal and go out of the umbrella of the uh, Sam missile. So at that point, they said, "Let's wait for this to happen." It's a battle that we are better at. October 14th, Sadat attacks. Over 200 Egyptian tanks are destroyed, and that's a major turning point in the Sinai, leading up to the crossing of the canal, the 15th, 16th. But still, some very, very bloody battles at the uh, China at the Chinese uh, farm. Um, and the crossing and, and really till the end of till the end of the war and no American intervention yet. So the American intervention actually occurs, you know, with the, with the you know, once the Soviets start re, uh, resupplying the Arabs in the uh, the Americans start their airlift around this time as well, October 16th, October 17th, starting the uh, starting the airlift when finally Nixon gives the order um, send everything. You got. Now, it's a big machloket uh, d- debate how much the airlift helped. It definitely helped morale-wise, and it definitely helped to resupply the Israelis and made a big difference as the war went on. Uh, whether or not at the moment it started, the Israelis were very low on ammunition in their stores or not is a question, is a matter of debate. But it certainly... Uh, helped in terms of the morale, and it helped one of the results of the war was a greater Israeli dependence or reliance on on America. And uh, those who would then claim that Nixon saved Israel, that might be a stretch. In, in the, uh, you know, in the sense that, in the sense that, who who are Kaddish Baruch Hu's agents? So did America definitely help? Absolutely. Uh, Nixon going through Watergate and the, the famous Saturday Night Massacre when he fires all his uh, right. uh, his his Attorney General at that time. It definitely makes a difference in moving forward, and also makes a difference to the to the Arabs understanding that now uh, America is is going to be supplying. Supplying Israel, but so also, but, al- but also, I don't want to. I don't want to neglect what you brought up in terms of the Cold War aspect of this. Once they saw the Soviets take a strong interest in helping the enemy, the United States may have decided, the White House may have decided that they they've got to make a move. They've got to, you know, they've got to play their hand in this game and show that they have a, you know, that they have skin in the game and they have a side that they're that they're helping out. Uh, Absolutely, and the, and the last thing the United States wanted is for Israel to lose using Western weapons to the Arabs who are using Soviet weapons. Right. And, and in the context of the Cold War, that was a big issue. Right. Wow. Um, and also there was a mentality. I don't know if the mentality was like this in Israel. And frankly, I was a little kid, so I don't know. The mentality may have just been among you know elementary school children uh, in the United States. But there was a mentality that because 
you know, we had, not that I remember it, but we had just, you know, experienced the Six-Day War such a short time ago. The mentality was, all right, we need a few days and, you know, and we'll be able, we'll be able to defend Israel and knock off the enemy. And as the days go by, it becomes obvious that it's not going to be as easy, so to speak, or as miraculous or whatever word you want to use as the Six-Day War was. What was, was that draining on the Israeli people? Was this, even though it was not, you know, months long, thank God, was it, was it very difficult coming off such a major victory and now you know getting right back so to speak it's only six years getting right back into the throes of war and suffering uh the way the way the israeli people were suffering at the beginning of the war absolutely and and one of the the major issues going into the one the mindset was that people felt that if there'd be another war when there would be another war it would be day seven of the six day war and then the war starts and it's not day seven the Arabs, all, all, the, all their predispositions and, and biases that the Arabs aren't good fighters and soldiers were all day one uh, jettisoned from, from this mindset. And that's one of the reasons that despite the fact that the Israeli army has, wins a major victory and a major turnaround, people focus on the beginning and the fact that, that they lost, you know, right. we were lied to. Right. We were, and yes, yeah, so it, it certainly wasn't day seven of the six day war. Right. No, I get that. It's a, but the, the, you just made such an important point. We really do focus a lot in the last 50 years about those very difficult first few days. And, and we neglect sometimes to recognize the, the miracles that God did and some of the things that uh, the Israeli army was able to do in order to stabilize things as you described before. And, uh, you know, 10 days into the war, which is now getting toward the end of the holiday of Sukkot, is there an official ceasefire? You mentioned the, the ceasefire attempt early on, but when does the ceasefire become much more realistic? So, so the, the, the ceasefire, the, the second one, which actually kicks in very, you know, before we almost ended up in nuclear war with uh, the Soviet Union over misunderstood or miswritten letters from Brezhnev to uh, Nixon, the actual ceasefire starts around October 24th, 25th. But with that said, especially in the North, there's still another war of attrition. I think, you know, when we talk about the casualties, let's say over 2,600 men were killed in the war, over 400 of them were killed after the war stops, right. in the war of attrition for the next four or five months, especially up north in the Gulf. In the south, after the meetings in November at kilometer 101, it stabilizes Pachotayotir. But aside for another three, four months, there's heavy fighting and, and hundreds of casualties up north in the Golan Heights, yeah. and, and we sometimes forget how terrible the situation it was still there. And I remember this as a kid, that there was an official ceasefire, but you know we were instructed by our parents, our teachers, etc., uh, that the, you know, the prayers have to continue on a very serious basis, and it was for months because, as you just described, it was, it was just ongoing, and it just continued. And I, and I think, you know, speak about attrition, I think as time went by, finally at some point uh, in 1970, Seventy-four, meaning a few months after the war, finally the worldwide Jewish community, you know, acknowledged and understood that finally things were at peace, so to speak. Relative, relatively speaking, right. now, it went on so long on the African side, which I call, which is which is what the soldiers in Egypt referred to as Egypt and Africa. They actually, in the village, town, city, Fayed, whatever you call, however you pronounce it exactly, they had a yeshiva. They called Yeshivat Goshen. 
They after that, they smedrish set up in the yeshiva and shiurim for the soldiers who were there. Uh, many different Russian yeshiva came down to give shiurim and, and, and rabbanim for the four or five months that, and they actually picked the masechet that they were learning there. The soldiers the time off. They were there for so many months, and that la- that lasted until around what Purim time. Around Pesach time, around oh, around yeah. around Pesach time, Hanukkah they were still, uh, you know, when they said the uh, the brachot on the Hanukkiot, you know, they had about the nisim, they had a lot in mind, not just, you know, the basmana that part of the bracha was very real to the chayyim making the brachas at that point. That's an understatement. And by Pesach 1974, one could say. That the, that the war had concluded at that point. Right. Most of the soldiers are released. The reserves are back home at, at that point. However, the suffering of the soldiers who were injured uh, continued. They were still working on the, you know, nearly a thousand agunot had to be, uh, you know, to be mad to them. Rabbi Radio Yosef had to be to din for that. And uh, there's a video going around uh, on YouTube uh, discussing as an interview with his son, Rabbi David Yosef, who says, every night when my father was working on it, we would hear him in bed at night crying. On all these cases, one can only openly able to be martyr close to a thousand uh, women that they identified that their that their husbands had been killed, and they were able to remarry. But it took him an insane amount of time, and and the pain of the rabbanim who were working on all these on all these tragic issues. Unbelievable. Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg's with us. Fifty years since the Yom Kippur War. Um, there are, I mean, so much has been written about all the wars, of course. In the Six-Day War, there are certain things we could point to. Radio broadcasts that went Israel's way that the other side was, you know, um, uh, confused about. And, and certainly uh, the attack on the, on the Egyptian Air Force. I mean, there, there were certain specific episodes that anybody involved felt was really, uh, you know, moving with the hand of God. Obviously, all this was moving with the hand of God. But there were certain things that were so obvious. Give me one or two from the Yom Kippur War, where it, it was so miraculous what happened, and so against the teva, against the nature of of military um, uh, battle, that one has to acknowledge the miracle from above. So you have to say even like the first few days in the in the Golan at Tel Saki, famous story. So the it's a group of about twenty five soldiers or so in that area now under the command of a 20-year-old or so, uh, Menachem Ansbacher, who was a Dati soldier. And while they're hiding from the Syrians, and the Syrians have taken over everything, they're in this really, really small, small uh, bunker. Uh, you can ask your brother Yigal. We were there in, uh, in, in the summer to see how small it was. Right. And two Syrian soldiers back in uh, to hide from the, sh- the, the, sh- the shelling. And they're literally a few feet away from these 25 Israeli soldiers. And... They have grenades at the Israelis because they figured, okay, this is it. And the Syrian soldiers don't turn their backs. They don't hear even the breathing of the guys behind them. And after the showing stops, they leave. And it was just low you mind how that happened, that they, they mama felt this was going to be their Custer's last stand. And then they walk out. The, uh, and then part of that is that the, they had these grenades, and, and, and Menachem Ansbach, who writes in his book, he couldn't find the pin to put back in. Because it was dark, he's trying to put the pin, and he, there is no pin. But he had his kippah sugar in his pocket, so he takes <laughs> out one of the clips, and he ends up using the clip from the kippah sugar to put it in the grenade as the pin. How uh, that that bunker held twenty five soldiers comfortably would have held how many people? Three. Unbelievable. And there's stuff. Uh, it, 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 the, the the original bunker that 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 you can visit today, maybe three, and not, and even those three wasn't so comfortable. You know, it, it and it's just you know 
you look at it and you see it, and that's why it's so important to see these places. Or, or you go up to the Emek and you see that Kalani's brigade, you had, he had about 10 tanks left that last day, he was saying, and several hundred Syrian tanks are coming to them, how, how they're able to hold them off, and he said he never dived in so hard in his life. You know, just let me get to those ramparts before the Syrian tanks do, because if I don't, they're going to be able to go into, you know, to the go off the Golan into uh, the the Canarid area and the Galil. You know, came down to seconds. Yeah, literally came, came down, down to seconds. seconds. And you hear, and then you hear these stories, and one of the most powerful stories, and a lot of being written, and and you know, first of all, there's a, there's a relatively new, a new book that came out by Uri Kaufman on the right. Yom Kippur War. Excellent, excellent book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that yeah, a lot of things Shalavim put out Hamayan there with many, many stories. And one of the stories that like really like blew me away. One of the guys, he was one of the Hezdernicks who was sent up to the Golan to help lead the uh, davening, and uh, they're trapped the first two days or so in a bunker. And his parents know nothing. What's you know, my parents were going through a Gehenom of of what's going on with me. If I'm dead, if I'm prisoner, this, that, the other thing. And finally, we're rescued. And I come back and I, I get home. I get to the door and they open up. And my parents give me the biggest hug. He said, like Yako finding that Yosef's alive. That hug. And he goes, just so powerful what my parents are going through. He goes, and I, I guess he takes a shower and he says, you know what, I'm going to sleep for a few hours and I'm going to join my tank unit tomorrow in the Sinai to continue to fight. And my father, and this is a father who thought his son was dead, gave him the biggest hug in the world. Then he comes to his son as his son says, let me take a nap for a couple of hours. He goes to his son, you can't nap now. Yesh milchama, get to your unit right now. And he said, my father was an Akedis Yitzchak. He said, he just gave me, he said, the country's under threat. You can't be napping now. You know, that level of glory, not just of the soldiers, but of the parents and, and the spouses of, you know, it's mama, it, it, it's slow human, that, that, that gavura, the, and Rav Kuk writes, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the, the extra glory to go along with that physical glory, gives us that spiritual glory to do these things. And that just, that story just blew me away. You know, um, I, I mentioned, uh, I'm sure you heard me mention at the top of this, that uh, I was privileged to meet, I mean, thank God that I, that I had this encounter to meet somebody, an Orthodox Jew, who was in the United States um, for that Yom Kippur. And he described what the airport was like at JFK that night. Uh, because so many who were able to, you know, serve in the Israeli army, who were required to serve in the Israeli army, ran from here to there. And, uh, you know, again, I don't want to, uh, it, 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 it's it, the spirit you just described, the gvura that you just described was really, you know, on different levels, obviously, uh, but uh, was felt by Jews around the world. And if there was a, a way, you know, people, there were many people who felt there's a way that they can help, they're going to help. And that could have been raising money. I remember there were a lot of Israel emergency funds at that time. I remember this as a kid. It could have been raising money. It could have been actually going to Israel. It could have been, uh, you know, d- doing um, whatever people could do in Washington at that time to lobby Congress and the White House. It just seemed like there was a complete mobilization of worldwide jury in whatever role they could have because of this challenge that was put forth. Um, so so, that, I, so I believe Sadat said that the Jewish community raised more money in that time of the war for Israel than the, all the Arab countries put together gave Egypt in five years to help fight. I believe that. That's for sure. Um, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg directs the Holocaust uh, Shoah Institute um, at the Yeshiva of Flatbush. He's director of the William S. Levine Family Shoah Institute at the Yeshiva of Flatbush. It must be interesting to you. 
I mean, I'm sure you've thought of this as you, you know, have become an expert in modern Jewish history and has spent so much time on one of the darkest periods of of uh, modern Jewish history and has spent so much time on one of the greatest victorious periods in modern Jewish history. It must baffle you sometimes that even though obviously God is always with us and there are plenty of stories in the Shoah where we can certainly acknowledge that God is always with us no matter what the situation, but we know what the fate was of so many at that period of time. And we know what the fate was of the majority of Jews living in Israel during this time of the Yom Kippur War. Thank God, you know, the, 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 the Jews of Israel, thank God, were able to continue. Obviously there were casualties, but you know what I mean? And we were able to get to this point. It must be an interesting dichotomy for you as you explore both those eras. Yes, it's, it's you know, you have to have a certain mindset and headspace when you're studying it and reading it. And more importantly, I would say, after the research part is uh, the reflection period. You know, fortunately, I spend a lot of time in traffic on the Bell Parkway <laughs> going back and forth to work, so I have time to reflect. But I think that that, that time period needed to process, reflect, to think things through, the questions, the approaches is, is, is critically important um, to try to understand the, 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 the Yad Hashem, the, the history, the decisions made by people at the time, and, and the stories of Gvuran, and, and even, even the people, you know, you have Chaim Sabat, Chaim Sabat writes in his Sefer that he was in a tank, reform guys from Yeshiva, and a total atheist. And the atheist was the tank commander. And the tank commander, they had one night where they had four hours of sleep. Make a long story short, the tank commander lets the other three, the three young guys, sleep it off. And he takes the entire shift for four hours, which he wasn't supposed to do. And they were, like, amazed. And he said, I, I just felt too bad for you guys. You needed your sleep. And Chaim Sabah, Chaim Sabah, right to that point, when I saw this level of achtas, that this Chiloni guy had Vachmanas on three yeshiva boys, I said, I knew we were going to win. Amazing. And at that point, we were going to we were going to win this war. Amazing. Let's focus on the unity, uh, especially coming off of Yom Kippur, which in some places in Israel was a difficult Yom Kippur. Uh, let's focus on the unity. Our Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg starts a brand new series. It'll be about the Eichmann trial, Tuesdays, 9 a.m. Eastern time, right after Sukkot. That'll be two days after the holiday here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We'll remind you, of course, about that. Also, you're making your Yom Kippur War curriculum available to everybody. Now, I've sent this to Avrami, which means if anybody who gets today's newsletter, there'll be a link where people could download it. Just describe for a moment, Rabbi Hertzberg, what you're offering everybody. So I work together with an organization in Israel, Ami, as well as with the organization United to develop this curriculum. I did part of it. They did part of it. It's six units, and we deal with, uh, with an emphasis on life lessons that could be learned from it for, for students, but for really anybody. We talk about the intelligence failures. We talk about decision-making under uncertainty, and a few other uh, topics from the, from the war, leadership and heroism. And each unit has a PowerPoint presentation, background information, um, teacher's guide, but it's all information to help you really understand the aspects of the war, uh, lessons, uh, trying to make it practical for life lessons as well. And, you know, you know, we're sending it to schools, hopefully getting it more and more, but really uh, anybody, you know, we're, we're happy to share it, no charge. It's, it's, we just want to get that information out. Uh, there's also a little video from Avigda Kalani who uh, reviewed parts of it as well that we've worked with him. 
as well. And really, we just want to share it to get to get the uh, to motivate people to learn more about it. And and there's a, so much, so many wonderful articles and stories and videos right now on YouTube and on the internet that are really just inspiring stories. Be prepared to cry; they're painful, and you're as they're inspirational. And you're willing to give your email address for anybody who wants it, correct? Anybody who wants it, you know. Dhertzberg at flatfish dot org. Absolutely, where you know we 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 want to share this. We wanted to get the message out. We want people to to learn about it and um, you know learn the even some like 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 the leadership. As one general that I've interviewed said, you know, leadership is by definition under conditions of uncertainty. If there's right. conditions of certainty, you got management. You don't need leadership then. You just follow the rule book. Uh, and and so many lessons like that to learn, as well as to understand the uh, the background information and. Uh, to see stories of Gibul Rav, uh, the, the major who came back several times after being injured, or right. the Hillel Hansdorf from Mazah who takes a safer tour into captivity. And Just amazing, ama- amazing, amazing story. And anybody who gets our newsletter, uh, if you get our newsletter today and every day, our daily thread, everybody, that link will be in there as well in the story about this conversation, so you'll be able to access the curriculum that way. And I know you have a special contest and program uh, with uh, Yad Vashem. I think we'll save that for another day. I assume that's being announced sometime in the next few weeks, right? In Yetzirah, we're going to be co-hosting a conference with Yad Vashem here at the Yeshiva Flatbush. Um, they're going to be first teachers who've done their program, new teachers, and also a very exciting thing we're starting for select schools that will be in. You know, we have a limit to number of schools we'll be inviting for a student ambassador program. All right, so be very intense for high school seniors. So get me the uh, details on that, and we'll choose a time to speak about that on the air. Thank you right. so much for joining us today. Gamar Tov to you or by Hertzberg. Gamar okay, Tov as well. Thank you so much, Nachum. And uh, hopefully uh, more and more people will acknowledge the incredible gift that God has given us in the state of Israel and the miracles that he's performed in order for us to be able uh, to continue having the state of Israel. Kolaka votes you, and thanks again. Thanks again, Nachum. Bye-bye. 50 years since the Yom Kippur War. You're listening to a Wednesday morning edition of JM in the AM.